Welcome to the New York City Parks COVID or History Project podcast. Our subject is the history of the COVID-19 pandemic and the response and activities of New York City Parks. Our hosts are Diana Baker and Kevin Fitzpatrick. This is episode number five, Kiss the Bride and Hug a Tree. Hello, Diana. We're back in sunny Williamsburg, Brooklyn at McCarran Park Play Center in the Media Education Lab. Our team is using the Media Lab to share our history with listeners, presenting some of the more than 100 interviews conducted last year about the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, our guests are First Deputy Commissioner Iris Rodriguez-Rosa, Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer Mark Folk, Parks Enforcement Patrol Inspector Asha Harris, Chief of Staff Dan Doherty, Bronx Chief of Operations Lawrence Goons, Park Administrator William Morrison, and Public Engagement Coordinator Jennifer Grafe. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to all of our new listeners today. This episode is about parks as spaces that restore all of us, how parks were used during the pandemic in new and sometimes unusual ways, and how important open space became to us in New York. On our last episode, we were indoors in recreation centers used for young students during the days of school closures. Today, we're gonna talk about New Yorkers' relationships to parks and open spaces and how they reflect our social environment and our connections to each other. New Yorkers are used to living on top of each other, stacked up in boxes with no backyards or front yards, so we need our parks. Our public spaces are communal spaces. While other cities also have parks and playgrounds, they do not come close to the absolute necessity that they are in the Big Apple. This is a city of almost nine million people crammed together, and we interact, collide, fall in love, strive, disagree, protest, succeed, and reinvent ourselves. This is where the magic happens in all those interactions. And then, in the early days of the pandemic, overnight, we were frozen in place, just like that. We saw this reflected in our parks, too. Looking at 2020 and 2021, parks were the only show in town. You're absolutely correct, Diana. I remember the news stories like, should you wear a mask when jogging in the park? Could you be spreading more droplets by running? Or pep officers telling people on picnic blankets to keep six feet apart. People needed their parks, used their parks, and that's what we're exploring in today's show. Yes, one of the key parts of New York City parks is operations. So we went to Mark Folk, the deputy commissioner and chief operating officer, overseeing the daily operations of all aspects of the park system. He remembers the first wave of the pandemic when the city was empty. He was interviewed in the Arsenal in Central Park, the historic headquarters of NYC Parks. From that March of 2020 till early July of 2020, those first few months, there was hardly any trash or litter or graffiti or broken glass or anything to pick up because there was nobody in the parks. I, I have this, I have one photograph that I really like, which I think is this ghostly image of, it's kind of a gray day, it was in a site in lower Manhattan. And we have a parks worker you know, and almost a complete Tyvek suit, a head, mask, gloves, all this stuff, cleaning up, like sweeping up in a panel room, a completely empty park. And this person is, it's, it's I think, so poignant and powerful and sad in some way, because this person 
was putting their own health at risk in some way. They probably had to get on a subway. The majority of our way workers get to work. They then have to cover themselves all over and pick up a pan and broom to go out and clean up a site that probably doesn't need to be cleaned up, but that's their job. And they're cleaning it up, but nobody's going to be there to enjoy it. But that was our job. So that's what we did. What was the mood like in the arsenal? It was like Groundhog's Day every day. You know, we'd come in here, be the same, super quiet. Here in my office on the second floor, there was no one else on this entire wing of the second floor. So I would walk in here from when there would be 30 people out there on a normal day to me being here by myself. And we would have the same meetings, the same time every day. We met three times a day, you know, in person or virtual with City Hall, the Department of Health to talk about the pandemic. What are we gonna do next? And that's all, like everything else came to a screeching halt. So everything else we would be doing in early March, planning for the spring, planning for pools, planning for beaches, everything we do in our seasonal cycle at parks came to a screeching halt. It was all about COVID. That's all we talked about. That's all we met about. And then I'd walk home through an empty Central Park and an empty Upper West Side. I live, I'm very fortunate to walk to and from work. Nobody there, nobody in my apartment building turn on the news, it's all about COVID, go to bed, wake up the next morning, walk back through an empty Central Park to the same 11 people, those same three conversations every day. What were you witnessing when you, when you went out to the field, I guess? Yeah. Okay. What were you seeing going out to the field? Emptiness. Just emptiness. I mean, it was, you know, it was weird because, you know, one of the perverse benefits of the, of the pandemic in the early days, it was really easy to get around this city. You know, I'm so used to leaving an hour to get anywhere. And I'm, you know, running to Queens, or I'm running up to the Bronx to check on something and I'm getting there like that because there's no traffic on the streets. So there was nobody around. I would get to the parks and there'd be nobody in the parks. Again, I'm talking the March through July. Sure. After we lifted the first phase, after the first phase of shutdown was lifted and right after the 4th of July, everything changed. But in those first three months or so, there was nobody. There was nobody on the roads, nobody in the park, nobody was around. It was interesting that when I spoke to more than 100 people for this project, several all referenced the emptiness and sadness, like we were living in a post-apocalypse world. Commissioner Folk was like a lot of us, walking to work and home to avoid mass transit. Another person I met in Arsenal is Jennifer Grafe, an eight-year parkie, who is our public engagement coordinator, who also walks to work across Central Park. In 2021, she helped launch the Hug a Tree campaign. One thing to know about Jen, you'll never, ever catch her wearing a Yankees or Mets cap in the park. What was the city like at that time? Like when I was experiencing it running to the park? <laughs> um, it was sad. I, I was, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the city. I am a very proud Washingtonian, but I work for the city of New York. Um, I will never root for their sports teams. I take great pleasure when their teams lose. I don't care who beats them, it just makes me happy. Um, but I am very proud to work for this city and this agency, so um, it was very sad. It was heartbreaking. There's a lot here. <laughs> There's a lot of spirit. So. What keeps you here? Yeah, I really don't know. I've been trying to work that out for a while. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a... And we talked about, I mean, my coworkers and I, we talk about this because it's like, what is that spirit? Like, what is the essence of this city that keeps people here when it's a hard place to be? Um, 
And I think ironically, a lot of that is like, <laughs> it's a park. It's like a lovely place to spend your time. I mean, people just don't come to New York City and like want to hang out, I don't know, on Broadway. Like they want to go to Central Park. They want to go to Prospect Park. They want to go to probably one of our properties. <laughs> so um, like that, those are like the lovely moments and the lovely times that, that I think people that bring people to the city and make them fall in love with it. So um, trying to tap into that was always really important in terms of this, like some of the messaging and creative work we were trying to do and put out there. Is so the one thing you did during the pandemic you're proud of? Yeah, we did a hug a tree initiative um, where we literally were thinking like, 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 like can't hug anybody, can't touch anything. And we kind of cooked up this can hug a tree like and then we did some research and this was actually a thing in some countries that you know they were clearing deeper than usual paths and forests so more people could get out and it wasn't so much like the forest bathing thing but it was just like more people could connect with nature and you know there's a whole thing around hugging a tree where you actually feel like your chemistry change and so yeah we <laughs> put together a whole initiative where we were then you know we have these green signs we have lots left over you're more than welcome to have one but um if you would like a sign that says it's okay to hug me um so it was a sign that says okay to hug me we would put them on a tree and then the benefits and then we created a page because we actually didn't have i think a landing page where it lists all the benefits of trees and and not just like hugging one, but like what they do for us and like cooling the city and, um, you know, all the oxygen and all the wonderful things that they do. There's an element of like whimsy and silly, but also, and light that also hopefully isn't going to offend anybody in a time of crisis or loss for so many. And sort of show that like we're here to, to help on some in some way and sort of tongue-in-cheek tongue so yeah we put up I don't know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of signs across all five boroughs and trees inviting people to hug them in a time where it maybe didn't feel safe to hug people. <laughs> Have you seen the results of any of your work with the, in the public realm? You probably saw someone hug a tree. LeVar Burton hugged a tree. Like, I was like, I don't what? care if anyone hates this project. LeVar Burton hugged a tree and put it on Instagram. And my whole life professionally has been validated. So I don't, like, after that, I don't really care. In some ways, we can see the progression of the pandemic from what we saw in our parkland. Now you've made me think about my high school science class. I've often thought that parks are like frogs for our community ecosystem. Frogs are considered an indicator species of how the environment is doing, whether it's healthy, how it's changing. Parks are public spaces with a capital P for public. It is truly the most democratic space there is. It's for everyone. Like frogs are for the environment, parks are that indicator of what communities are undergoing and how they need our parkland. We see this in the usage of parks. In the first wave, the city was shut down and very few people were riding the subways. 
All those opportunities that we take for granted to see and interact with others disappeared. Those early days were very quiet in the parks and then there was a burst of activity in July 2020. Parks became the place where we were not alone and separated. We spent our time outdoors and in parks trying to maintain our sanity and social distancing. Parks became everything to everyone and New Yorkers needed parks and open space. Starting in summer of 2020, we all came out of our homes and into the parks. Parks such as my go-to, Tompkins Square in the East Village, were incredibly crowded. And then in the winter, people were bundled up, meeting up with masks on. If you saw unusual and extraordinary things in parks during the pandemic, you might have stories to compare with Asha Harris. She is the Parks Enforcement Patrol Inspector. The nickname is Pep Officers, who keep the peace in parks. Asha joined the agency 21 years ago and now oversees more than 300 uniformed officers in the field. I think, um, again, I think we, we might have saw a lot more things happening in our parks that maybe we didn't see before. I'll give you an example. We had a press inquiry one time. There was um, someone cutting hair in a park. We had one time we saw a group of people that were kind of going into like a wooded area, but fully dressed. Like it's a Saturday night in New York City. So dresses and hair done and makeup done and they're going into an area that's just like wooded, right? And you're like, what's over there? Full DJ setup, unpermitted parties. I don't know if you remember seeing the news, Washington Square Park. Um, one time they had floaties and turned the fountain into like, I don't know, this pool party. And then you had around the same time of COVID and, and as we were like slowly, or we thought we were slowly coming out before Omicron, then you had George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and a whole bunch of other things that kind of came into play. And then we had a point where we had a lot of protests. So um, there was a lot just kind of happening in, you know, in the city. So I don't necessarily think COVID changed the role because we've always had protests. We've always had vendors. We've always, but I think the more you get people coming to the park, the more people are isolated where they may not want to interact with their families or they they have no access to to do the things that were their outlets to play the basketball to go on trips to do those things i think we saw a lot more of the mental illness the the need to to use more and all of this stuff so i think it maybe changed our environment and some of the things that are happening around us but not necessarily the job itself right because the job is still to go out there to ensure that we're preserving our property protecting people and and just engaging the public and being public servants so i don't think our job changed i just think some of the conditions or the amount of things that we had to deal with probably kind of changed how did you keep going i mean you have all this being piled on you over and you know how do you do it i don't know <laughs> i don't know I think it's um, just keep going and you keep going for your team, right? Because it's not just me, it's me and everyone else that's out there, right? Like I'm not the one handing out the thousands of masks, right? I may be speaking to you and coordinating, but when you're in a situation where 
you're leading your team and you're just extremely proud like people are afraid people but they're still coming in they're still handing out that mask they're still talking to the group of soccer players that they've spoken to a hundred times to say hey guys you can't do this um you can't stop right um i often tell my guys that i work for them as much as they work for me right so it's not just you know I'm the inspector, I oversee the unit, and, and that's it. No, I have to work for you. I have to listen to you, I have to hear what's going on, and then do my best. And I think that's what kept me going, because you really see, like, when people are afraid and there's uncertainty, but people still show up, you really just see the dedication, the pride, the commitment. And I think that was pretty much the catalyst to keep going, because you can't stop. Well, because I live between Riverside Park and Central Park, I've seen outdoor weddings and photo shoots in the parks for 30 years. My friends Tara and Donna Jay married during the pandemic in Central Park during the early days of the lockdown. But the pandemic drove every kind of social occasion to our open spaces. A different story is recounted by Dan Doherty, a 14-year veteran of the agency who works as the chief of staff to the deputy commissioner for administration. A Brooklyn dad, he has vivid memories of the borough in this era. And your local park, Prospect Park, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, the parks, especially once things picked up, the parks were busier than ever. I mean, that's what I, I guess what I remember about Prospect Park. And I mean, you see these world-class bands in the park, you know, that probably usually be in clubs. Small farmer's market near my, near my neighborhood, uh, Bartell Pritchard Square and just this incredible jazz band that would play there, this tiny farmer's market that, you know, they hadn't ever been there before. They're usually probably playing these, uh, you know, clubs, but, um, so you definitely saw a lot of live music. Um, um, and then, yeah, here's a, here's a scene. Yeah, walking along the perimeter of the park, uh, February, bitterly cold, trees are bare, covered in snow. Look up and there's a child's birthday party uh, in the park. So, you know, the parks were used uh, yeah, more than ever, um, especially in, you know, late summer 2020 into 2021. Okay. Um, and I, my family, we went uh, to Greenwood Cemetery a lot. You know, I've lived, uh, I'd say, you know, most of my life near that cemetery. And I've only been there a couple of times, you know, for my grandparents' funeral and uh, things like that. I just, uh, it was, it's a great, amazing space that I just wasn't really tapping into. Uh, so I think that speaks to the increased use of green spaces. Yeah, my family went there pretty much every, every weekend. I mean, we took long walks there, really got to explore. Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful space that, you know, um, it's an arboretum that I just never got to, never took advantage of prior to, prior to this. One of the problems with the dramatic increase in the use of parks was the increase in garbage left behind and rats. I met up with Larry Schoons, the chief of operations of the Bronx, a 38-year parkie. What you were going around, what were you seeing when you were driving around the borough? Well, it really depends at what period of time. In the early, early days, there were not a lot of people anywhere. Um, as people kind of got used to the idea you saw more and more people using our sites, and by the summer, we were utterly packed. I mean, like, heaviest day of the year, day after day after day after day. Um, and 
everybody, you know, left us the souvenirs to uh, commemorate their visit. <laughs> yeah, I understand the trash removal was a huge operation. Um, it impacted us with picking up litter, with removing trash, and as you can imagine, a consequent explosion of rodent activity. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Well, because, you know, we were essentially running a bed and breakfast for them. Mm -hmm. um, so at some point, we were able to hire a couple more exterminators. That came directly from City Hall and their neighborhood rodent reduction program. I don't know if you heard of that, but that was one of their, the de Blasio administration's initiatives. And they had areas in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan that they wanted to try to target for uh, winning the war on rats. But one of the key things with rodents is denying them food. If you can't deny them food, you will never decrease their population. Um, and they're very adaptable. That's why they've done so well for so long. Uh, so that was top of mind for us during the pandemic um, because so many more people were out using the properties, leaving a lot more litter. Uh, it made it harder actually to clean the place because people were in the park so late in the day and early in the morning. Uh, it makes it a lot slower operation to clean as well as to get around to pick up the collected trash and cart it away. Seeing the trash problem in the Bronx, the borough commissioner at the time, Iris Rodriguez Rosa, helped to facilitate meaningful Mondays. Local New Yorkers joined together weekly to help park staff clean their neighborhood parks after busy weekend usage. Today, she is the first deputy commissioner, the number two position in the agency, which she joined 37 years ago. Meaningful Mondays was one of the defining moments of the pandemic for the commissioner. I went out and spoke to some of the folks, you know, I called people. I, I went out to the districts and, and spoke to them. Um, so we started to talk to the, you know, the elected officials. I have to say the borough president, Ruben Diaz Jr., he started with an idea that came from one of his staff members to do what they called a Meaningful Monday. Okay, so Meaningful Mondays was very important. Um, and he brought out his staff. He lived right near Soundview Park. He lives right, you know, he, he lived in the buildings right there, Soundview Park. He brought, there were the friends of Soundview Park, there was his staff members, and we were all out there, um, you know, cleaning the park on a Monday morning, you know, after a, a weekend. And he also called upon the other elected officials. The other elected officials saw what he was doing, and then they started to do it. These are elected officials, you know, doing cleaning, um, you know, doing cleaning. And it sort of motivated the staff that we had here in the agency to see that they were valued, okay, for what they do on a regular basis. And then to see the elected officials and myself, because I was out there, you know, myself, my regional managers, 
um, my regional managers were out there, Minerva, De Real, uh, Dan Reynolds, they were out there, you know, just cleaning with me. And I was, they saw me, so they got motivated by me, I got motivated by them. It was just a wonderful, you know, feeling to do that. I don't know if any of the other boroughs did what we did in the Bronx, but I'm happy to be exceedingly proud of, of, of what we did. Was always at Soundbridge, you move it? Oh, we mo oh, no, no, when we had the, when we had the cleanups, uh, it was through, because now the elected officials wanted to do it in a particular park in their area. So we had Joyce Kilmer Park, we had Claremont Park, we had other, other you know, just, you know, key parks in the Bronx where the elected officials chose a park in their district to be able to come out. And we, as the agencies, provided the bags, provided the tools and things like that to, to, to make it happen. For our final interview of the show, we're going from the Bronx to Manhattan to the landmark Washington Square Park. We'll have more about this famous park in a future episode, but Parks Administrator Will Morrison shared what he thinks is important about the human element in parks. You know, I think I would share that uh, up until the pandemic, there had been a trend in, I think, our culture towards isolation, towards, you know, pursuing your own thing, whatever that was, your own future, um, independent of everybody else. And I think there was a sense of community that had been lost. And living through this COVID pandemic and this time, you know, it really brought back the human element to New York City, um, especially. And, you know, really, really, I think, rekindled a sense of communal spirit in the city for better and for worse. Um, and we're all living through the ramifications of that right now. This episode is bringing back a lot of memories for me, but at the same time, we heard a lot of hopeful and inspirational stories today. We'll be continuing this conversation on episode number six, when we will explore more about how parks play a part in the lives of New Yorkers then and now. Thanks for listening to our show today. Thanks, everyone, for the support and feedback our podcast gets. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the New York City Parks or History Project podcast. It is produced by... New York City Parks Media Education. Our hosts are Diana Baker and Kevin Fitzpatrick. Our producer is Igosa Ogbo, and our sound engineer is Eddie Hall. Our executive producer is Joy Wang. Original theme music, A Stroll in the Park, is composed and performed by Brett Meany, and the show's soundbed audio is composed by Shaquem Hill-Wasse. I am announcer, Zach Lella. On our next episode, we will continue our conversation about parks and open spaces with a focus on keeping them open. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcasts by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And please like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends and family. See you in the parks.